Well, good morning, Elevation Church. How are y'all doing today? Two or three here, one or two there. We do this every week. I am that guy. How did you, I, I don't know, maybe y'all didn't realize it. Do you know that today is a great day to be alive? All right, there's some more people that are happy now. It is, it's a great day to be alive because the alternative is, well, it's not good for some of us. For some of us, it may be something you're looking forward to and hopeful, but you're probably not ready to check out just quite yet. Am I right? All right, so it's a great day to be alive. We're doing good. We're here. We've been worshiping. I pray that we will continue to worship as we open up the Word of God and get into it. We are in week eight, unless my Aggie math lets me down, which is possible, but I'm pretty sure we're in week eight of our teaching series, Red Ink. Red Ink is a series all about the words of Jesus. We've gotten into what Jesus actually said and what he actually says 2,000 years ago and still today because his word is alive. And what he says is relevant and valid and powerful in your life and in mine. We talked last week about prayer. And we're in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. We're actually in chapter 6 now. So if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, you'll be, uh, you'll be ready to roll here in just a minute when we get there. We uh, started Matthew chapter 6 last week talking about prayer. We talked about the words that Jesus said leading right up to the Lord's Prayer, a series of verses, a passage that we've come to call the Lord's Prayer. And what he taught us last week about prayer, I thought was very powerful. Because last week, he didn't really teach us how to pray so much as he taught us how not to pray. You ever notice that that's a great way to teach somebody a lesson? If you, I'm one of those people. If you give me a negative example, here's what you don't do. That helps me out a ton because I'm one of those people that's a little hard-headed. And I confessed this last week. I'm pretty sure, like I'm fully convinced that I'm fully correct, like just about 100% of the time. Amen, right? I, I, do, I think I'm right all the time. My wife is really good at checking me on that. We talked about that last week. But Sometimes I would be fully convinced that I'm right when I'm fully wrong. And if somebody gives me an example of what not to do, then that might save me from going down the wrong path. So I think what Jesus taught us last week, very important. Very important about prayer. Because you know what? Prayer, I think, is a puzzling thing for a lot of people. I think prayer is a puzzling thing for a lot of Christians. A lot of Jesus' followers puzzle with prayer. They're puzzled with prayer. Puzzled by what to pray, when to pray, when is it not appropriate to pray? How should I pray? How do I even start a prayer? Oh Lord God. I mean, how do you start a prayer? There's people who, they, they don't know and they're confused and they, they watch televangelists and Guys like me that stand on a, on a platform and preach, they, they listen to their mom and dad, their grandparents, and they, they try to gather some, some idea of how do I pray. People are puzzled by prayer, and a lot of people's prayer lives are, are, are like stunted. They're stopped down because they don't even know where to start. They're puzzled by prayer, what to pray, when to pray, how to pray. Christians are, are puzzled by this. Non-Christians are puzzled by prayer too. There's a lot of people who are, who are not followers of Jesus who do believe in prayer. They practice some religion that teaches prayer this way or prayer that way. And, and I think a lot of the non-Christians are puzzled by prayer. They're puzzled about who they pray to. 
I mean, they have the same puzzles that, that Christians do about when and, and where and, and how, but a lot of times the, the, the rest of the world, the non-Christian world, is puzzled by who to pray to because they're praying to demons who are disguised as gods, little g, gods, false gods. There's all kinds of confusion and puzzlement about prayer inside the church, outside of the church. A lot of non-Christians puzzle with, with the, the how to pray. They're like, did we bow and face east? three times a day and recite some, some mantra, do some, some, some recitation, some rote, memorized prayer? Do we sit in the lotus position and, and you know, I, I don't know. Puzzling. Prayer is puzzling. Jesus knew that we would be puzzled by prayer. I think that's why when he pulled up his seat there on the side of the mountain and he began to preach, he naturally came to the point where he talked about prayer. Because he knew the people who were following him would be puzzled with prayer. And he knew that we today would be puzzled with prayer. And he doesn't want us to be puzzled by prayer. So he painted us a word picture that works kind of like the lid on the box of a jigsaw puzzle. Right? He paints us this word picture that we call the Lord's Prayer that teaches us how to pray. It puts all of the pieces together and gives us the full picture so that we can model our lives after it. Now that part that I just said is important, modeling our life after it, because there's a lot of people today who believe that Jesus said, pray this prayer. Do this. And they recite the Lord's Prayer verbatim, and it becomes like a religious ritual for them. I don't think that's what Jesus says I don't think that's what his intent is when he gives us the Lord's Prayer. I think his intent really is to put all the pieces of the puzzle together. Let's see what he says. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 13. Matthew 6, verses 9 to 13. Jesus says, this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Is it an illustration? Or is it a direct order? Pray like this. This is how you should pray. Should we repeat the words verbatim or use this as a model? I side with the, the, the idea that Jesus is giving us a model of how to pray. And the reason I do is because throughout the rest of the New Testament, we don't ever find a place where this Lord's Prayer is given at a different time. Now, it's recorded in other books, but it's just from the same occurrence. You don't find Paul later teaching that we need to pray the Lord's Prayer and recite it this way. I think what Jesus is giving us here is a model for how we should pray. That doesn't mean that saying the Lord's Prayer is a bad thing. I'm all about reciting the Lord's Prayer. Here's the deal. If you heard those words a minute ago and wanted to start chiming in with me, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Did you learn that prayer at some point early in your life? I learned it in seventh grade, football. My non-Christian coach, I was a non-Christian at the time, had us pray the Lord's Prayer before every seventh grade football game. I don't know if we were praying for protection, praying to win. I don't know what we were trying to get God to do because I did not understand the words. I had never heard the Lord's Prayer before. He gathered us up in a huddle before the first game of the season. It was my first organized football game. I had no idea we were about to pray. Gathered us up for the pregame talk, you know, and I'm like, what's Coach Hernandez going to say? And Coach Hernandez had us pray the Lord's Prayer, and I didn't 
know the Lord's Prayer. And so I mumbled some stuff while everybody, you know, around me was praying our Father and all this stuff. And I was like, by game three, I had it down, though. I'd memorized that rascal. Now, I still didn't have a clue what it meant. I had an idea who we were praying to. I had no relationship with God, but I kind of knew it was the God of the Bible. And, and that's all I knew. I had no idea what these words really meant, what impact they had in my life. And, and so I've been able to pray the Lord's Prayer from seventh grade forward. But it wasn't until just not that many years ago that I understood that there's real depth of meaning and real impactful stuff in this prayer. And so saying the Lord's Prayer outright, man, I got no problem with repeating it verbatim. Know what you're praying if you do that. If you're teaching your kids to pray the Lord's Prayer so you can show them off to your friends and tell them what a great, righteous set of parents you are and what holy kids you have, been there, done that, right? We had some friends, we had five couples, all had kids around the same time. One of those couples, their, their two-year-old could recite the Lord's Prayer. He was born a week before our, our child, our oldest. I was like, oh yeah? We'll take that. We'll go home and do that and teach them something else too, you know? Chip on my shoulder. I don't know what that's all about. Pray the Lord's Prayer and mean it. Don't pray it to show off. We learned about that last week. Praying to impress people, not a good thing. Pray the Lord's Prayer and mean it. If you're going to pray it verbatim, know what you're saying. So let's find out right now what Jesus is saying. Let's get into his words in verse 9, and let's start tearing this thing apart, breaking it down, and finding out what it means to you and to me and how we can live what is in this prayer. Jesus says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Two things in that passage, that verse, jump off the page to me. Father, our Father. Jesus says, God in heaven is your Father. He's your Father. Not Jesus' Father. He is. He says, our Father. Not my Father. Our Father. Your Father. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, God is your Father. You are adopted into His family. You're adopted in. Ladies and gentlemen, you are sons and daughters of the King. Sons and daughters of God Most High. Princes and princesses in the kingdom of God. Is it a good day to be alive? Come on. Who knew? I'm a, I'm a prince. I'm a princess. I'm loved by a holy and righteous God who loved me so much he adopted me into his family. Did you know, in Bible times, an adopted child could not be disowned, but a natural child could? Howdy. You cannot be disowned from the family of God. You cannot lose your princeship or princesship. I think I made that word up, but you can't lose it. You're children of God, and God is your father. Your father, your, your, your dad. The word Jesus uses in this prayer that we translate in English to father, the word is Abba. And it's a very familial term. It's a very like casual term, not formal at all. It, it literally should translate in English to, to dad or daddy. 
It's that loving, endearing, relational connection that you have with your father. Jesus says, Dad. He's praying to Dad. Abba, Daddy. Second thing that pops off the page to me. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. That's reverence. Jesus is revering the Father. He's teaching us to revere God our Father. Hallowed be your name is reverence. Now, for some of us, it's difficult to, to understand how you can have this daddy familial relationship and, and reverence for a holy God all at the same time in the same relationship. Jesus never struggled with that. He didn't teach us to struggle with that. Hallowed be your name. Revere God. Dad. Abba. Father. We're to, we're to worship. We're to, we're to revere God. We're to adore God. We're to have a familial, close, near, dear relationship with God. And that relationship starts in prayer. And Jesus, who has just taught in the phrases right before this about how not to pray, don't pray like the religious hypocrites, the Pharisees. Don't pray like them. They pray to impress people. Don't pray like the pagans who babble on and on and just repeat themselves and chant mantras and stuff. Don't, don't, don't pray like that, that, that. Then he turns around and says, pray like this. He's teaching us a model. And I think what he sets us up for here is a model of saying, look, don't look to religious people to learn how to pray. Don't look to irreligious people either. You know who you should look at if you want to have a great prayer life? You know who your model should be? A child who has an awesome relationship with a great father. Look at a child that has an awesome relationship with a great father. Maybe you can't relate to that. Maybe you don't have an awesome relationship with your earthly dad. Maybe, maybe your earthly dad was not present. I heard a stat this week. I didn't check this out, so I don't know if this is true. It's troubling. If it's true, it's really troubling. 40% of American kids go to bed at night in a house that is absent a father. Man, I hope not, but I'm afraid it could be. 40% of our kids don't have a father present in their lives, don't have a dad living in their home with them. That's a challenge for these kids. You know what God says? He says he's a father to the fatherless. He's dad when you don't have a dad. He's daddy when you don't have a great example to look to. When you don't have a relationship with your earthly parent, your heavenly parent is there, very near, very close. He's not a distant deity. He's right there with you, and he loves you. And he wants us to have that relationship with him. So looking at a child who has a great relationship with a great father is a great model for a good prayer life for a powerful prayer life how does a child interact with their dad man i revered my dad in my household when i was a child two three four five eight twelve years old my dad was god right i mean his word was the law his discipline was solid <laughs> solid just for the record um what dad said mattered what he laid down as the rules I followed, mostly. 
I interacted with my dad in an awesome way. I revered him. I feared him. The Bible says, by the way, that we should fear God. Fear is not the kind of scaredy cat fear that we think about the word fear. Fear, in this translation, what it really means is astonished reverence. We should stand in awe of God. I stood in awe of my earthly father when I was a young child. He had a big voice. He had big shoulders. He had big hands, big arms. He's big. There was no safer place in the world, as far as I knew, than in my father's arms and in my father's house. There was no greater joy than to have my father be pleased with me, to be excited about something I had done. Man, I, re I just had this phenomenal relationship with my dad. I'm 40 years old next month. I still have that relationship with my dad. When I talk to my dad, I pick up the phone and call him. I don't say, Dear Father in Midlothian, hallowed be thy name. Hey, Dad, what's up? How you doing? It's great to hear your voice. What's going on in your world? Here's what's happening in mine. Come up and visit. Want to hang out? Let's go fish. Let's go hunt. Let's go camp. That's my relationship with my dad. It's been that way since I was a child. Jesus says if you want a great prayer life, I think here this model is if you want a great prayer life, find that kind of relationship with your heavenly Father. He's there ready for it. He's waiting on you. See, children adore their parents. They haven't learned yet that we're fallen and fallible, sinful, selfish, full of mistakes, frankly evil in a lot of ways. <laughs> hadn't learned that yet. Kenley, my two-year-old, is just starting to figure it out. Children adore their parents. We need to adore God. Adoration of your heavenly Father is the first piece in the prayer puzzle. Adore God. Have a relationship with Him like a child with their father. Verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is about seeking God and seeking God's kingdom. Seeking God and his kingdom. That's what Jesus is, is teaching us in this part of the prayer. You know what it's really about? It's about alignment. It's about alignment. You ever had to have your car aligned? You're driving down the road and your steering wheel's like cocked over here, but you're going straight, right? You need an alignment so you can be in line with, right? We need to be in line with where God is taking us, with where God is steering us. We get out of alignment. We start out of alignment. That's what stinks. You buy a new car, it's usually in alignment. We start out of alignment. We're born into sin. Sin is a situation we deal with from the time we enter this life. Thanks, Adam and Eve. You're born into it. You can't help it. It's a sinful world and you're a sinful person. Alignment comes when you seek to submit your will in lieu of God's will. When you, through prayer, seek to make your heart God's heart. God's heart, your heart. His will, your will. That's hard to do, especially if you don't know God's heart and don't know God's will. 
If you don't know God's heart and don't know God's will, it's really hard to get aligned with Him. And that's why I think so many Christians in our world today believe that they can live life the way they want to. You cannot choose to go your own way because you are not your own. You do not own your life. You do not have the right, Christians, to just do your own thing. We keep hearing about freedom in Christ, and you are free indeed. You are free in Christ, but you're not free to go your own way. Check out 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. 1 Corinthians 6, if I can get to the right page, verses 19 and 20. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he says, You are not your own. Christians, you are not your own. You were bought at a price, a very great price. You're not your own. You can't choose to go your own way. See, Jesus paid your debt. You were born sinful. That creates a debt between you and God, a distance, a gap. You can't have the connection that he wants with it as a child and a father. So Jesus, his son, paid your debt and mine. He paid the price for your sins. He bought your way with his blood into God's family. And you're indebted to him. You are indebted to him, to God. Now the beauty of being enslaved, as Paul says, to God is that God's way is perfect. God's will for your life is perfect. Your way is imperfect. If you haven't figured that out yet, do not raise your hand, but trust me, your way is imperfect. It's flawed. It will fail. It will lead you places you never wanted to go. You chose to go there by going your own way, but it wasn't where you thought you were headed. God's will for your life is perfect. But we as sinners struggle to set our will aside and align our hearts with his heart. To set our rights aside and align our hearts with his heart. To set our wants aside and align our hearts with his heart. We're free from sin, but we're indebted to Christ because he redeemed us. We need to submit ourselves to His will, pursue His will, and not our own. Even Jesus had to pray for alignment. I mentioned it last week. In the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night that He was betrayed, Jesus literally sweating drops of blood, stressed to the nth degree, prayed, God, if there is any other way. He knew what was coming. He, he had everything figured out. Like, he knew what was about to happen. God, if there's any other way, let's do it that way. I don't want to do it this way. Let's do it any other way but this. And then he said, but not my will, yours. Not my will, God. Your will. He submitted to his heavenly Father. He submitted in worship. Because submission 
is the ultimate act of worship. When you set your rights, your pride, your way, your will aside, and you submit yourself to God and accept His will for your life, that is the ultimate act of worship. Jesus sacrificed Himself for you. He sacrificed Himself for me. I think what we need to do is to sacrifice ourselves for Him, for His purpose, and for His will. And the beauty is when we do, we only stand to benefit. His way is perfect. Yours is not. Worship is the second piece of the prayer puzzle. Verse 11. Give us today our daily bread. It's about provision. Give us today our daily bread. Pray for provision. Because God is the ultimate provider. He's the ultimate provider. By the way, I've heard this, this, this praying for provision thing preached several different ways. I think the one that hits home for me the best is this. I can say it in one short phrase. Pray your need, not your greed. <laughs> Pray your need, not your greed. So pray for the things that you need. What did they, Jesus Our daily bread, the most basic of foodstuffs, bread, his needs, the daily allowance of bread, the daily allotment of nutrition. Give me today my daily bread. I need food to live. You need food to live. You don't need prime rib. I'm just saying. Some of us have prime rib taste and we, and we have ground beef budgets and we're, we're praying that God will give us prime rib instead of being happy with the ground beef, right? Some of us are driving vehicles that get us from point A to point B very efficiently, very effectively. They're fine, nothing wrong with them. And we're praying, oh Lord, won't you give me a Mercedes Benz? There's nothing wrong with a Mercedes Benz. I happen to like Mercedes Benz. I don't own one. I'm not opposed. Might like to have one one day. I'm not praying that God will give me a Mercedes-Benz. I'm praying that God will meet my basic needs today. And if one day He gives me way above what I need and I can afford to do that without robbing from my family, without robbing from God, still fulfilling my responsibilities, my desires to serve my fellow man, then I got no problem rolling up here in a Benz. Y'all will know if that day ever arrives because you'll see it parked right out there. Don't know if it will but I'm not opposed. Pray your need, not your greed. God is the ultimate provider. He provides for everything, everything. If you think that you worked for it, if you think, no, I roll up my sleeves every day, I go to work, I use my intellect, my talent, my good looks, I use my blood, my sweat, my tears, my muscles to earn my living. I earned it. It's mine. It's my money. It's my stuff. Okay, we can play that game. Who gave you those good looks? Who created you in His image and likeness? Who built the muscles in your body to do the miraculous things that they do? Who gave you that intellect that you apply to earn that living? Who put you in the proximity of the people who would hire you to use those things? 
God's the ultimate provider. Your husband is not. Your wife is not. Your parents and grandparents who are giving you something in a will or gave you something, in a, they're not the ultimate provider. Everything you have, have had, or will have comes directly from the hand of God. He provides it. He is the ultimate provider. Pray for God's provision and acknowledge in your prayers. There's a few things here I think we need to acknowledge. First, that everything is from God. Let Him know that you understand. Everything is from Him. Your heart is in line with His heart on this. God, I understand. I'm good looking. I've got talent. I've got skills. I've got muscles. I can earn a living. It all came from you. Without you, I am nothing. With you, there's nothing I can't do. Number two, God is not obligated. He's not obligated to give you the Mercedes-Benz. He's not obligated to give you the BMW. He's not even obligated to give you the Kia, the Chevy, the Dodge, the V-Dub, whatever. He's not obligated. God made a promise to meet your needs. Outside of that, there is no obligation for Him to give you what you want. Only what you need. And even in giving you what you need, He may not deliver it in the time that you think He should or in the manner that you think He will. But His timing and His methods are perfect. Acknowledge that it all comes from Him and that He's not obligated to give you anything outside of your needs, your daily bread, so to speak. Third thing, let the Lord know that you're satisfied with just having your needs met. You're satisfied with just the needs. He knows you have wants. You can tell Him what they are. He already knows, and that's okay. You can still tell Him. He likes to hear things from you. He likes for you to communicate with Him. Let him know what your wants are, but let him know that you're satisfied with having your needs met. You don't need to have this and that luxury item, this and that amount of money to be happy. You just need your needs met to be joyful. Let him know that you're content with his provision at the need level. And finally, let him know that you are completely, that you know you are completely, totally, wholly dependent, wholly with a W-H, wholly dependent on him. Wholly, fully, completely, totally dependent on him. Jesus' audience that day on the side of the mountain, they would have gotten this message. Of all the things that he preached so far, I know for sure this would have been like the light bulb goes off above their heads, right? Because these were Jewish men and women. They would have grown up being told the story and, and having the tradition of the nation of Israel in the exodus from slavery in Egypt, going into the desert and spending 40 years wandering in the desert where there is no food and water, and having God meet their needs. Their ancestors, their direct blood relatives, they knew, went through this, and God met their needs. He gave them manna, bread, from heaven on a daily basis. Just enough for the day, and if they gathered more, it rotted before the next day. Water from a rock, quail from nowhere. God met their needs and even gave them more sometimes, like the quail. These Jewish people would have gotten this. Do you get it? Do you get it? 
Provision is the third piece of the puzzle of prayer. Let's go to verse 12. Jesus prays, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Forgive us our debts. Forgive my debts. Forgive my sins. As I said earlier, we are in debt to God because of your sin. You're in debt to Jesus who paid that penalty for you. All Jesus is modeling for us here is coming clean, telling God what he already knows. He knows. He knows. He holds your debt. He understands that you're indebted to him. He wants you to understand. He wants to know that you know. Let the Lord know you understand. Confess your sinfulness. God, I'm, I'm a messed up dude. I'm a messed up lady. I do my own thing. Pursue my own will. I fail you. Don't do it in a general way. Come clean and tell God you know full on what you did today. Confess those sins. Because out of your confession and your coming clean, you open yourself up to reconciliation with God. See, God won't deal with your sin problem until you confess that you have one because you're not ready to receive the reconciliation that He has in store for you until you can confess that you have that need in the first place. But when you do confess it, when you uncover that, then God covers that with His grace, with His mercy, with His love. And He reconciles you to Him. And you can have that daddy relationship. Confession is another piece of the prayer puzzle. Verse 12 continues. Forgive or as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us as we forgive those who sin against us is another way to say that. We all have people who sin against us, who offend us, who treat us poorly, do us wrong. How do you treat those folks? Jesus is teaching us something here called intercession. Intercession is the next piece of the puzzle. Intercession is when you intercede for somebody else the way Jesus interceded for you. He forgives you your sins. If you forgive those who sin against you and intercede on their behalf, now you can't pave their way into heaven like Jesus does. You don't, your, your sacrifice isn't perfect. You're not the unblemished lamb. You, you were not set up to do that. But you can share with others what God has shared with you, the grace, the mercy, the love, the forgiveness that allows reconciliation to happen. And the Bible says we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. We can reconcile with each other just like God reconciles with us. We can make amends. We can forgive other people. Now, when you forgive somebody for, for their sins against you, that does not mean that you just throw open your arms and welcome them right back into your life so they can kick you and walk on you and, and beat you down again. If there are habits and patterns of sin in somebody's life, forgive them and love them at arm's length. All right? You can still love somebody who's not in your inner circle. Remember I talked about the hula hoop last week? Hula hoop. You can only get about two or three people in a hula hoop. That's your inner circle. Right? Your hula hoop friends. Your... Uh, um, 
Board of directors, if you want to you know, use that kind of terminology. You don't have to bring somebody back in if they have violated your trust, and especially if it's been a pattern or a habit of doing this. You can love them, forgive them, and you can move them into outer circles. You can move them all the way out into the associates. It's like four or five concentric circles away from that inner circle. Okay? You don't have to, but you can bring them back in. Do so carefully. Do so wisely. Do so with wise counsel through prayer, through consulting Scripture. Make sure you're not bringing somebody back in who's a a pitfall for you. But forgive, because unforgiveness, man, unforgiveness is poison. It's poison to your heart. It's dark, sinful stuff. And when you let unforgiveness fill your heart, the darkness, the cloudiness of that unforgiveness, that can block your relationship with God. That can mess up your communication with Him. It can put you in a, in a bad position relationally with Dad. It's like being in the doghouse with Dad. Nobody ever liked to be in the doghouse with Dad. You hate getting sent to your room, being grounded, getting the spank, whatever the... Nobody, You can be in the doghouse with dad. And it's not that dad's mad at you. It's that you've just pushed away from him. You've gone your own way again. You're out of alignment. Forgiveness is crucial in the life of a Christian. Look at, skip a verse here. We're going to skip verse 13 and go to 14 and 15. Verses 14 and 15, as Jesus has wrapped up the Lord's Prayer, he follows it by saying, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Intercession and confession are two big pieces of the prayer puzzle. Verse 13. Jesus is wrapping up his prayer. Lead us not into temptation, he says, but deliver us from the evil one. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is a prayer of protection. Like I said earlier, as a young child, there was nowhere in the world that was safer than in my father's arms and in my father's house. I never feared for anything if my dad was around. Because as far as I was concerned, my dad was 10 feet tall and bulletproof. And some of my friends knew that I was willing to put him on the line to prove it. (laughs) My dad could beat up your dad. What you gonna do? (laughs) If my dad only knew. (laughs) But God is the ultimate protector even more than your earthly father could have ever done. Your heavenly father does every day. He protects you. And Jesus says that we should be praying for his protection. It's the final piece of the puzzle. Protect us, God, from temptation. And more importantly, from the sin that follows on the heels of temptation. Did you know that it's not a sin to be tempted? Jesus was sinless, but we know that he was tempted. He was tempted, but never sinned. Temptation is not sin. Sin is what happens when you let that temptation, what I say, draw you off sides. Right? Get misaligned with God. Go your own way. Pursue the temptation rather than pursuing your heavenly Father and His will for your life. Sin follows on the heels of temptation. Pray that God will 
protect you from the, from the temptation, but even more importantly from the sin that follows. Because let's face it, we all know that we're going to be tempted. You're, you're tempted every day. I'm tempted every day. Men, we get tempted every day. Ladies, you get tempted every day. We get tempted. Pray that God protects you from those temptations, especially the ones you're most susceptible to, but more importantly, from the sin that follows on the heels of that temptation. Ask Him to deliver you from that evil. But what Jesus is teaching here, I believe, is even bigger than the day-to-day -day deliverance from the daily temptations and the opportunities to pursue our sinful desires. I believe what Jesus is teaching us here is to pray for deliverance from God's final judgment, His ultimate judgment on the world, on mankind, on Satan, on Satan's followers, and on sin itself. The book of Revelation teaches us the, the end times are coming. We, we, we know it's coming. I read the back of the book. I cheated and skipped ahead. Um, God wins. He, he's victorious in the end. His followers are, are cool with that. They're good. They're whoo, hooping and hollering. Together in heaven. New heaven and new earth are created. The old heaven and the old earth are destroyed. And the enemy, Satan, the father of all lies, the tempter himself, in this final judgment, is separated from the earth. He's separated from God's followers. He's separated from God's presence. And so is every person who is in alignment with Him. And that, the Bible says, includes every person who is not in alignment with God. Those are challenging words. That's tough stuff, and it's unpopular to preach that truth. We want to believe that everybody has their own path to heaven, but that's not biblical. The Bible says get in line with God, or you're aligned with the enemy. Jesus says pray for deliverance on a daily basis, but also from that final judgment. You don't know how many days you've got and neither do I. You don't know how many second chances you're going to get, and neither do I. And we have a beautiful, wonderful, awesome God, a God of second chances, a graceful, gracious, merciful, loving, holy, righteous, just God who forgives, who reconciles. And that is His will. That's His will that we would all be reconciled to Him, that repent from our sin and align our hearts with His heart. Let His will be our will. That's God's desire. He gives you the choice, gives you the option. You can align yourself with the enemy, go your own way. You can align yourself with God. But one day, the judgment will come. It's going to happen goes back to the, your kingdom come, your will be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done. God's kingdom is coming. The new heaven and the new earth are coming. The judgment is coming. His will is being done. Pray that His will be done in your life.
and in the lives of the people that you love and value and hold near. I don't know when it's coming, but I know we can be prepared for it. Jesus teaches us in our prayers how to prepare, how to align, how to find forgiveness and to be reconciled and have that relationship with our Heavenly Father.